I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Twenty-seven-year-old Darlie Routier was convicted of murdering her five-year-old son, Damon, and was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Darlie Routier never confessed. She still insists she's innocent. At her trial, there were no eyewitnesses, no clear motive, and the evidence was entirely circumstantial. Routier's family has rallied around her. Her husband, the murdered boy's father, says the state has sentenced the wrong person to death. Are you prepared to die? I don't know if anybody's really prepared to die, but I feel like I know where I'm going and that I have Evan and Damon waiting there for me. The last thing that young boy saw in his lifetime was his killer, his mother, coming down at him with a knife. Well, I got up, Damon followed behind me, and by the time I got to the corner of the kitchen, I could see the man going out into the utility room, out into the garage. I did not murder my children. I love them. So it doesn't bother you that you have no eyewitness, no motive, no sense, and no confession? She did everything to herself. Welcome to I Could Murder a Podcast, Series 8, Episode Number 12. And sitting across from me is the absolutely audacious, admittedly abstract, anarchic anglophile, an agent of awkward, it's Ben Carter. Oh, A star for that one. I like that a lot. How, uh, how's it going, boys? All good, all good, my friend, all good. Just, uh, we're just saying how it's nearly autumn and that's very depressing. Yeah, and I, well, I, I also had uh, one of the most depressing bank holiday weekends ever to close my summer off, so that was nice. Ooh. Uh, got a uh, got a little bit of food poisoning from an old bit of cheese. An old bit of cheese? Was it from the bin again? <laughs> oh, come on, Dan, please. How are you doing, Dan? <laughs> bin, bin Carter. Go on, Dan, how are you? Yeah, very good. Are you, are you a fan of halloumi, boys? Apparently it's quite divisive. I didn't realise it was so oh. divisive. But, um, I actually had a halloumi kebab last night. Oh, very nice. I'm on the halloumi wrap as we speak, but I'm not going to eat it on the microphone because that's a disgusting noise, isn't it? And you call it yeah. squeaky cheese. Squeaky cheese, yeah. Love it. Love a bit of well, squeaky cheese. When I, uh, when I passed my dad a bit of halloumi to pop on the barbecue, his face, he was bemused at the fact Ooh. that we were putting cheese on a barbie, uh, fuming. Um, but no, I had a bit of the old Monterey Jack cheese. It was left over and I thought, instead of smelling it or looking at it, I'll try it to see if it's still okay. And uh, <laughs> that was the wrong thing to do. And uh, no. Googled it straight away. Can old cheese give you gut rot? And uh, apparently it, it's very it, devastating effects. Uh, so, yeah, I was out for most of the bank holiday, unfortunately. Don't take this as an insult, which you probably will. But um, <laughs> if it was a higher calibre of cheese, it probably wouldn't do it, would it? Because cheese is essentially mould. I'm not going to take that as an insult. I know what you're saying. Okay, I, good. I, I'm a fan of tacky cheese. It's cool. <laughs> um, but no, so, I don't know. Well, sue I, me. <laughs> but um, no, I Googled it straight away. And if, if you eat an off... Do you Googled it? Googled it. Googled, I Googled it. it. Yeah. Yes. Ask cheese. But yeah, uh, but that aside, everything's all good. Happy to be here today with you boys. How, how was your guys' uh, bank holiday? 
I, I worked a fair bit of it, so yeah, it was oh. it was fine. It was it's quite quite sunny, so that's quite nice. Uh, yeah, not much to report. Did a lot of gardening, smashing things up with a sledgehammer. So that was my my weekend. So we got food poisoning, sledgehammer, and two thumbs up from the halloumi sucking Dan Lambert. But yes, we are back once again with a brand new case. Um, talking about dis- divisive, Ben, with in terms of the halloumi being divisive. Um, I think it's fair to say that this case today. Well, I don't know if it is divisive, really. Uh, after doing research into it, I kind of thought, oh, this is going to be one where, you know, did they, didn't they? Uh, but it doesn't really feel it is as split as as that. I know there are some people that are, are banging the drum of innocence, but I think it's kind of clear-cut. But w- what do you think of the case? Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I also think it's kind of clear-cut in um, the, hopefully the same way as you, but we could, we could come to blows towards the end of the episode. Um, I think this is a fascinating case. I think that, yeah, I think it's not quite evenly divided as you said i think there are probably more people in the guilty camp than there are innocence camp but it's a very interesting one i think this case could have been made i think they could make a similar podcast to the serial podcast in terms of how this case and all the detail to it um but i think it would be le- yeah far less divided in terms of the reaction to it or the beliefs of, of people uh, following the case but yeah super duper interesting one so yes today's case is the case of Dali rotier also known as the murders of damon and devon rotier Darley Rotier, Innocent or Guilty, Death Row's Most Debated, The Reasonable Doubt of Rotier. And uh, yeah, I believe my clue last week was sort of a posh French way of asking for the root. I can't remember exactly what my sort of cryptic clue was, but it was like, Darling Root, Darling Rotier, Darling Old Dear. Um, so that was sort of my cryptic clue. Not a lot of people got it, just like the Gary Hydnick one, the Hygienic Max. Uh, so I will work on my, my cryptic clues. Uh, to reveal the secret episodes. Do you have a good one for ne- the next one? I'm working on it. Okay, cool. I'm glad, glad to know that your, your mind's <laughs> going to be on the case for, for this episode. <laughs> but yes, it is, as we said, it is, it's a, I'm going to say a pretty divisive one, uh, but a lot of people do, do tend to lean one way. But we're going to throw it over to producer Dan to set the scene of today's case. But before we do that, boys, um, who fancies a cheeky little riddle? I love a riddle. Ooh. <laughs> Dan's riddle sly and mischievous grim. Twist and turn and mind game to win. Puzzles are plenty a chuckle or two. A laughter and thought we find our clue. Riddles! Yeah, getting a lot of good press about the riddles in the old um, articles online. <laughs> really? Brilliant. <laughs> um, really positive response. Uh, this one's either going to be really easy or really annoying. So let's crack on. Here we go. Uh. <laughs> on the first day of school, a young girl was found murdered. Police suspect four male teachers and question them. They were asked what they were doing at 8am. Mr Walter. I was driving to the school and I was late. Mr Thomas. I was checking English exam papers. Mr Benjamin. I was reading the newspaper. Mr Calvin. I was with my wife in the office. (laughs) The police arrested the killer. How did the police find the murderer? Oh, that's hurting my head already. Did like the sound of Mr Benjamin though. Did you sound like a wanker? No, <laughs> he's the only one that didn't sound like a wanker. Well, there's one um, wanker in there, and he's a murderer. So, are we to answer now or at the no, end? No, 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 no. Let that tingle on your old electrolytes. <laughs> oh, mm. my brain is hurting. Looking forward to your answer later, and like I'll repeat, I'll repeat the riddle later on. So please do. It's a bit of a long do. one. The case of Darley Rotier takes us right to the heart of a series of enthralling debates: innocence versus guilt. Reasonable suspicion versus probable cause. A mother capable of murder. All shrouded in the mystery of a brutal, chilling crime. 
During the midnight hours of June 6, 1996, a horrifying event unfolded within the weathered walls of the lavish Rotir family home. Allegations of an intruder, accusations of a mother, assertions of a psychotic episode. Each variation resulted in two young children being viciously murdered and their mother, Dali, left gravely injured. As the gavel later struck, accusing Dali of a heinous act that defined any kind of maternal instinct, the courtroom transformed into an arena of contrasting narratives. Was Dali truly the evil orchestrator of her children's demise, or the unfortunate surviving victim of a ruthless intruder? Each of the intricacies of this case have been unravelled for almost three decades since, with many still unsure of what exactly occurred within the home of Death Row's most debated inmate. So yeah, from that I think you get a flavour of of the the case itself and obviously the debate that has raged on. I think as Tom said, it is probably skewed more towards the guilt uh, element, but I think people find it so fascinating in that there were a few kind of shortcomings within the trial. There are, um, there's obviously not conclusive evidence, I suppose, that there wasn't an intruder. It does have kind of John Bonet Ramsey vibes in terms of the, it doesn't have as long a list of uh, possible perpetrators, but yeah, in terms of the mystery surrounding it, I suppose. But other people would just say, shut up, Ben, it's not a mystery, she did it. Uh, I'm leaning toward that. <laughs> yeah. Well, much like we did with our Making a Murderer episode and our Adnan Syed episode, we're going to start off with a couple of conflicting quotes. I think, even if I live to be 100, I wouldn't be able to tell you everything that happened that night, other than the fact that I simply did not kill my children. And that was from Dali Rotir. We've then got a quote from Greg Davis, who was the first assistant district attorney for the Rowlett, Texas area. I think we saw the real Dali Rotir at the gravesite party. You know, I kept thinking as I saw that. I'm a parent. If my children had died a week earlier, would I be in any condition to even talk about it? And yet, here's a mother sitting out there, singing, spraying silly string, giving out interviews without any sort of emotion. It was bizarre. It was despicable. It really made my stomach turn as I watched her there at the gravesite. So a little disclaimer, we have got a lot of people with the initials DR uh, in this week's episode. Dali Rotir, Damon Rotir, Devon Rotir, Drake Rotir... Darren Rotier, Danelle Rotier, Dana Rotier. So we've tried to simplify it to the family relation throughout in order for it to make the most sense because it does get a little... We've had all the words today, haven't we? We've got Tom's alliteration at the start. Maybe there'll be some interesting words in the interesting facts. Um, but yeah, a lot of DRs, a lot of DRs, and we've tried to make that... I've probably overcomplicated it, if anything. I feel like you did slightly, and it makes it more complicated, the fact they're all doctors as well. But um, but yes, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get into the early life as we tend to do. Dali Lynn Rotier was born Dali Lynn Peck on the 4th of January 1970 in the city of Altoona, Blair County, Pennsylvania. And a quick look online will tell you that Altoona is known for its rich railroad history as well as scenic beauty. Although it is known popularly as the Mountain City, in the 1970s when Dali was born, the city's official slogan was, and I thought, thought you'd like this, Tom, it kind of seems like something you might write, Altoona has hustle, uh, which I thought, yeah, we couldn't not include that. We could not include it. I don't know what you mean, but I would write. Altoona has hustle. I don't know. It just gave me a bit of you, but sorry if I was wrong. No, yeah, it's fine. Dan, we'll put that in the maybe pile. Darley was the oldest of two daughters born to Darley Key and Larry Peck, having a younger sister called Danelle. The family were considered lower middle class and occasionally encountered financial difficulties. They were also fairly young at the time that Darley was conceived, with her arrival not being something that either of the pair had planned for. Darley's mother, Darley Key, who worked as a server at a local diner, recalls the day that she was born in Altoona Hospital and said the following on her daughter's birth. I was 18 and scared to death. 
When they said she was a girl, I cried with happiness, and we gave her my name. It just yeah, it's just her, her name, Dal Dala Key. Sounds like Doctor Who. What what which bad guy was it? Oh, I don't know. I wasn't sure. It was Dala Key, but it wasn't. Uh... <laughs> Fuck's sake. Oh dear. Uh, but all of her life, Dali had an exceptionally close relationship with her mother. She was said to have been a mama's girl from the second she could walk and talk, though she had a slightly more distant relationship with her father, Larry, who served as a CB in America's war with Vietnam, and many have speculated that he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder at the time of Dali's birth. It would be surprising if so, as he served in Da Nang Air Base uh, with the CBs, and although the CBs predominantly supported military construction, um, CBs means construction uh, battalion, and built roads, warehouses, hospitals, storage facilities, bunkers and other facilities which were critically needed to support the combatant forces, they did witness a lot of chaos, death and destruction. Yeah, when I saw that he was a CB, I thought it would be sort of... I thought it would be a bit more sort of aggressive, um, like a certain type of boat or jet ski. Jet ski. Um, I'm just thinking of CBeebies. Yeah, I thought that as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. The day that Dali was born, her father, Larry Peck, said the following. It, <laughs> it was unexpected, and although we didn't plan for it, poured a concrete wall. It's not funny. It's just a concrete wall. I was so... Who pours a concrete wall in this? It's got PTSD, mate. Oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> Still, there's no reason to be a fucking idiot. <laughs> Imagine this house is just a puddle. I poured my house yesterday. <laughs> I was so happy that I went home, poured a concrete wall, and wrote with my finger, Darley Limpeck. January 4th, 1970, the day my baby girl was born. It's an interesting thing to do, isn't it? Uh, so excited. Oh, we just got a new baby. Let's go pour a concrete wall and write with my finger. I guess it's quite cute. Maybe CBs are built differently. Yeah, pouring concrete wall sounds mm-hmm. like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Dali was described by relatives as an absolutely beautiful child. She was blonde with hazel eyes and immediately became the pride and joy of both her mother and father, who completely doted on their daughter. In order to make ends meet for the family, Larry took on two jobs at a local construction site whilst also continuing to receive his military pension. Though all of this work quickly began to create tension between Dali's parents, who would often argue to the point of physical confrontation in front of their baby daughter. Three years after Dali was born, and despite the fractures starting to emerge in the relationship, the pair fell pregnant once again and had another baby girl, this time named Danelle. Dali absolutely adored her younger sister, and despite only being a young girl, she would often plead to be involved with caring for and feeding her little sister. She would also take baby Danelle into another room, whilst the parents would argue and fight. Dali attended Edison Elementary School and Keith Junior High School. A school called Keith is a very... <laughs> Where'd you go? Yeah, I got a Keith. Was that just the, the man with pissy trousers down the road? No, it's my, it's my, it's my high school. Uh, where she was said to have been a very popular young girl with average academic performance. She was quickly able to form a close circle of friends and caught the eye of many boys at her school. Dali's younger sister, Danelle, seemed to struggle in her sister's shadow, having very few friends and allegedly being bullied on occasion. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Dali's parents' marriage did not last, with the pair separating in the summer of 1977 and Larry opting to leave the family home. 
Not long after the divorce, Darley's mother and her two daughters made the move from Altoona, Pennsylvania to Lubbock, Texas, after meeting the quickly fall in love with a man named Robbie, who is based in Lubbock. Robbie also had two daughters from a previous marriage, and so Darley and Danelle quickly inherited two stepsisters. The separation and relocation completely unrooted Darley, who was just seven years old at the time. She couldn't comprehend why her mother and father were no longer together, and she also initially found it hard to get along with Robbie and his two daughters. Unfortunately, a pattern of financial difficulties would follow the new couple, who now had four mouths to feed as a result of their union. Robbie, Darley's new stepfather, has been described as very similar to Larry. It is alleged that Robbie would occasionally become physically violent to his wife and was also a very stern disciplinarian in the key household. It has also been alleged that Robbie liked to drink and that his behaviour would escalate after a few drinks at his local bar. Darley, her younger sister, as well as her two stepsisters, all formed a strong bond as a result of his abuse and would help one another adjust to their new circumstances. Darley would become somewhat of a recluse and extremely introverted as a result of her new living situation and family dynamic, causing her to have very few friends and focus only on her studies. She would remain this way for the majority of her early years. In her teenage years, Darley studied at Lubbock's Monterey High School, a bit like the Monterey Cheese, um, where she is said to have become much more confident and developed a more ingrained social life. Some students from the high school in later interviews would even state that Darley was almost overconfident to an extent, being, quote, over-showy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, she performed well in her studies and made a lot of friends at high school, catching the eyes of many boys in her classes. Catching the eyes... Give it back! Oh, Catching the eye and the heart of one student in particular. Oh. Yeah. Let's let's reveal. Let's reveal this student. Ugh. No. Um, so not long after they had relocated to Texas, Dali's mother took up work as a server at a local restaurant called Texas Western Sizzling Steakhouse, where she would remain working for the next decade or so. The reason we mention this job is that eight years later, in the year of 1985, a then 17-year-old Darren Rotier, who worked as a cook and a busboy at the restaurant, approached Darley's mother one day and said, and I thought, Dan, if you could say this in quite a sort of pursuant manner. I th- that's cool. Well, what do you mean by pursuant? Just Like, I'm interested in your daughter. Right. Hey. There's a guy. There's <laughs> a young man. <laughs> hey. <clears throat> Hey, I hear you have a beautiful daughter. Darren was referring to, at the time, 15-year-old Darley, who, a few weeks after this comment was made, and many believe at the request of her mother, attended the steakhouse where the pair were formally introduced. So that's quite nice, isn't it? Meeting at Texas Western Sizzling Steakhouse. Tom, if you had to do like an advert for Texas Western Sizzling Steakhouse, what would it, what would it be? <laughs> like a little jingle. <clears> hmm. <throat> I'm I'm so excited. Do you drive a heavy goods vehicle? (laughs) Do you like things on your plate that used to be alive? Well, come to Texas Western Sizzling Steakhouse. We got everything. Well, predominantly steak. And we also got taters. Come in. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Taters, is it? Um, Darley's mother considered Darren to be bright, talkative, and a good-looking young man who had ambitious plans for the future. She believed that he would be a good catch for her oldest daughter, playing matchmaker she introduced the two kids and by all reports it was love at first sight for both of them darren and darley quickly fell head over heels for one another they began dating and started making plans for a future together once darley had graduated from high school darley would brag to friends about having an older boyfriend who's going to make a lot of money through his electronics testing company which i mean there's a very 
I don't even know, from reading that electronic testing company, what that would entail, let alone yeah. uh, trying to brag about it. What was this, late, late sort of mid-80s? So mm. it's vague, isn't it? Yeah. I also view him as chat to hit, he's there sort of picking up picking plates up at Texas Western Sizzling Steakhouse, which we've done a lot of uh, sort of read-throughs now for. And I just imagine him talking to all the older ladies saying, I'm not going to be here forever. I've got a uh, big future ahead of me, uh, electronic ETC. testing. Yeah, yeah. ETCs. <laughs> uh, you got the taters? Um, but yeah, but yeah um, she's very much pushed for this relationship, Darlie's mother. The pair continued to date whilst Darlie finished the final couple of years of high school and would continue to correspond at a slightly larger distance after Darren went away to a technical college in Dallas. That's a bigger mouthful than Texas Western Sizzling Steakhouse. You're telling me. What comes next is perhaps a little bit of foreshadowing, as Ben would like to say, depending on your belief of innocence or guilt. In 1986, at Darren's going away party, Darlie began drinking quite a large amount of alcohol. A really big glass. And then according to a friend named Louise, Darlie showed a slightly more possessive and devious nature that seemed to lay hidden underneath her surface of sweetness. Darlie became agitated the more the night went on and was annoyed that she wasn't getting enough attention from Darren, so she left the party. Then she came back frantic about an hour later, claiming that someone in the neighbourhood had tried to rape her. That ruse gave her just the attention that she craved, with the party quickly coming to an end and Darren and his family consoling a 16-year-old Darlie. So what happens next is quite a whirlwind of different life events over a very short space of time. In 1987, despite some struggles with their relationship, Darren made a promise to Dali that the pair would marry and move to Dallas together as soon as she graduated. Darren had been hired as a technician at a computer chip company, which is slightly more specific than the electronics testing company. Deployed the chips at the steakhouse as well. <laughs> which meant that he was earning extremely good money for the time. He promised Dali a big home, a nice car, a fancy wedding, and a special honeymoon in Jamaica. And at this point as well, Dali is 17 and Darren is 19. In 1988, Dali graduated from Monterey High School in Lubbock and immediately informed her family of her plans to move to Dallas in order to live with Darren. Her parents supported this move, but warned her not to rush into things too quickly. So once they moved over there, Dali took up a job as a receptionist at Darren's company, whilst Darren continued to make good money in computer electronics. The pair got married in August of 1988, before jetting off to Jamaica for a two-week, five-star honeymoon at a private resort. That sounds nice, doesn't it? After returning from their honeymoon, the pair started living in a modest rented apartment in Garland, Texas, which wasn't far from where the pair worked, and they began making plans to buy their first home together. During the same time, Darren showered Dali with gifts, including a number of necklaces, gold rings, diamond earrings, and even a Rolex. Not long after they had returned from their honeymoon, Dali began showing signs that she was pregnant, and the pair's first son, Devon Rush Rotier, was born on June the 14th, 1989. Rush? is an interesting middle name. Rush, yeah, I like that actually. It's a middle Rush. Hmm? Rush Rotier. <laughs> Um, not long after Devon was born, Darlie and Darren purchased a new house in Rowlett, an affluent suburb of Dallas, Texas, and the couple spent thousands of dollars renovating the property whilst raising young Devon. Here, Darren started another company called Testnick, a company that tested circuit boards for computers. Testnick. We stick our neck out for you, and we test it. The pair operated the business out of the home, and it was immediately a huge success, earning the couple a small fortune. Wow. Which, yeah. I mean, 
Um, depends how small the fortune is, because if it's really small, then it's not mm-hmm. really. Fo- but the two years later, on the 9th of February, 1991, the couple's second child was born. Another boy, this time named Damon Christian Rotier. Can I just ask as well? So if, if Tom does get any lucrative voiceover work as a result of the Sizzling Steakhouse advert and now the Testneck Testneck advert, do we still cut it, you know, three separate ways? Or no, boy. Tom gets it all. Okay. Has to be. I mean, Dan's doing the audio bits and music behind it and adding some layers yeah. to it. I okay. don't know what, what part you've contributed to that. I sort of bring it all together. <laughs> no? I don't know what you did with the Ginsters. I think I brought up Ginsters, saying I fancied one. You remind me of Ginsters. Or what? No, I don't say... Whoa! A cheeky little petrol house snack. No offence, but you like cheap cheese. <laughs> no, I said no offence earlier, because if you had a, a bit of a higher level of cheese... Yeah. You wouldn't be shitting for an eye of a needle over a weekend. That's all I meant. A higher calibre of camembert. Of camembert? All right. So, let's put it. Let's put it. Right. Camembert. Camembert. <laughs> As the following year went by, the couple continued to live the picture-perfect life from the outside looking in. They had a thriving business, a beautiful house, a wonderful family, and were still completely and utterly in love with one another. The pair were also incredibly popular in the local neighbourhood, with Dali being particularly well-liked due to her regularly distributing home-baked cakes and cookies to her many neighbours. They had a large group of friends and a supportive family. They even allegedly started paying the mortgage for a local cancer patient in their neighbourhood. The Rotiers were model residents and a picture-perfect family, but like many of the other cases we have covered previously, things behind closed doors were much darker than they seemed. Turn the light on. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In 1992, the first cracks started to appear in the relationship of the Rotiers. Despite the initial boom of their business, it had eventually quietened down with the emergence of a number of competitor companies who were deemed far cheaper than Tesnek. 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 Please come back. Despite this, the couple appeared to be spending money far beyond their means. They had a brand new Georgian-themed house built for $150,000 in Dalrock Heights, an extremely affluent suburb of Rowlett, which sat with a view of Lake Ray Hubbard. Why does that you I don't know. It's like Old Lady Hubbard. Keith High School, Lake Ray Hubbard. Dalrock Heights. I do like Dalrock Heights. That does sound fancy. Stephen Knights. Stephen Knights got a Dalrock Heights. <laughs> and I called my, call my friend Lake Ray Hubbard, who grew up in a cupboard. As well as this, Darren also purchased a brand new Jaguar, as well as a 30-foot cabin cruiser boat. And he also allegedly ordered his wife to get breast augmentation surgery, planning to increase her size to double E like many of the women the couple had seen in Playboy and Penthouse of the time. My phone tariff is EE. Yeah, yeah. Mm. good value for money. Good value for money. <laughs> it's not bad. Ever since Testnet went down, I've had to kind of count the pennies. 
E.E. Big old boobies. <laughs> so whilst all of this was happening, Dali also developed an obsession with her ever-growing fine jewellery collection and filled her wardrobe with the latest, most revealing dresses. Which again, you're just going off of what the neighbours have said here. Yeah, this sounds like an incel wrote that last line. It does. <laughs> she kept buying the most revealing dresses. Um, and I can't touch her! Um, Dali described these moments as the happiest in her life. She was said to have been an incredibly caring mother, doting on her two baby boys, ensuring that they never went without anything or faced any kind of struggle. Yeah, there's lots of videos of them and the family together, and yet she just seemed like, you know, just... She seems like a good mum in the videos. Everything yeah. seems hunky-dory. Um, but obviously, as been mentioned, behind closed doors, you never really know what's going on. At Christmas, the Rotier family home was the most illuminated house on their street. And at Halloween, the winners displayed more goblins and ghosts than any other property. Um, as you might uh, imagine, at Thanksgiving, the Rotier's turkey was, was the largest, apparently, as well. They were getting the biggest birds with the biggest breasts. He, he, Darren liked big breasts. On the children's birthdays, Dali threw huge extravagant parties, inviting the entire class to their home in order to celebrate her boys' special days. They quickly became the envy of the neighbourhood. Yeah, the envy of the neighbourhood part, that's probably where you've got the critics saying, oh, all she wore was low-cut dresses and their turkeys weren't even all that great and goblins and ghouls and ghosts on the on the garden. Who needs that many decorations? They all were just a bit... Sort of, it wasn't very. It all sounded a bit bitter. Yeah, there's. Uh, you can see why, if especially. If it, I mean, obviously in the in, in England, you don't really get many uh, streets doing crazy decorations and lights. Perhaps one of the neighbours of one of the houses in the street where they didn't have the lights on, and the uh, Santa ho ho in every time it got a bit annoying. So they started slacking off the family. Perhaps. Yeah. It yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Three years later, on the 18th of October 1995, the third child to Darley and Darren was born. Once again, a baby boy. This time, the baby was named Drake Rotier. Sadly, at around the same time of Drake being born, the couple's company, Testneck, began operating at a loss. The pair owed $12,000 on credit cards and also owed more than $10,000 in back taxes. They were also in arrears for mortgage payments on their own home. The couple were rejected for several different loan applications due to their apparently precarious financial situation. They tried submitting applications both in Dali, Darin and even the company's name, all of which were rejected. After Drake was born, Dali began to suffer from postpartum depression and would become highly self-conscious of her recent weight gain. Dali's mood swings drew sudden tempers and dark rages, which made her increasingly unpredictable to be around. She often isolated herself to her bedroom as a result, a coping mechanism that she had learned as a child. She would regularly try different diet pills, none of which seemed to help. And this was something that Darren was happy to remind her of whenever the pair would argue. Which I thought, that's, that's pretty nasty, isn't it? Uh, with Darley now accusing Darren of losing interest in her, and even alleging that he had engaged in various affairs. On top of this, the pair began arguing and getting into physical confrontations regularly. Each would blame the other for their elaborate spending habits, with Darren telling Darley to sell some of her jewellery and Darley telling Darren to sell his boat. Neither of the two would back down. Soon, Darley found herself behaving in a very similar way to how her parents had behaved when she was a little girl, screaming, shouting and occasionally fighting in front of her young children. Darley would make a number of entries in her diary which alluded to the fact that she had become severely depressed and had contemplated ending her life on more than one occasion. 
with one entry even addressing her three boys directly. All of this happening whilst, once again from the outside looking in, the Rotiers had this perfect life. Or did they? It is here that we move to the timeline of Death Row's most debated, Dali Rotier. So we just want to point out that this week's timeline is it's to the second. So uh, we've, we've used the Rowlett PD police report on the case. So yeah, that's, so that's the reason we're going to be very specific on this case. Sponsored by Testneck. Testneck. We were out of our depth. We're bloody not sponsored by them because we're actually sponsored by someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by Texas Sizzling Western Steakhouse. Now they can fuck off as well. <laughs> so the 6th of June, 1996, between roughly half past midnight to 1am. I know we said it's very specific, but that, that one bit is, and we do get very specific soon after this. So don't you worry about that. Um, Darren Rotier goes upstairs, leaving his wife and two children downstairs. He's decided to go to bed. In his bedroom, his newborn child, Drake, is asleep in his cot. So Dali had opted to sleep downstairs, essentially because apparently the baby Drake, when he was moving in the night, was waking her up and disturbing her. So she wanted to have an unrestless sleep downstairs. And when she did that, the two boys, Damon and Devon, wanted to sleep downstairs. They kind of had a bit more of a sleepover situation going on downstairs. Camping movie night. Spooky movies. Yeah, carry on camping. Um, After dozing off on the couch, Dali claims to have felt a nudge against the shoulder followed by the sound of a glass breaking. At this point, Dali claims to see a shadowy figure wearing dark clothing and a baseball cap trying to exit the property. She gets up and follows him. So allegedly she, she, she tries to follow him to see what he's doing. He drops a knife on the floor and makes an a- escape um, before she comes back into the room, turns on the light and returns to a scene of unimaginable horror. 2.31.06am, so as we said, we do get slightly more specific with the times, Dali's infamous 911 call starts, and during the call, Dali is completely incoherent, and it takes the dispatcher many times to get information out of her. So actually, 44% of all the sentences she tried to speak within the call came across as completely incoherent, and we'll play this clip for you now. Forty-four percent isn't that bad if you if you hear the unedited version of this podcast. That's actually a that's true. Pretty it's good. True. <laughs> I want a live show. You, you probably don't. Two thirty-four and fifty-four seconds. Officers arrive at the scene. David Waddell tells Dali to quote lay down. Okay, just sit down, and you can kind of hear him in the background of the call because the, the nine one one call is still ongoing at this point. Now, David can clearly see that Dali is bleeding and covered in a number of uh, wounds, and she has a piece of cloth to stop the bleeding from a wound she has sustained on her neck. Dali can then be heard responding to David by telling him, quote, "They ran out of the garage." Upon entering the house, David sees a horrific sight. Two young boys are laying on the floor, bleeding to death. It has been said that Devon had passed by this point, but Damon was making gurgling noises whilst he crawled along the floor. And at this point, yeah, the police are absolutely convinced that there is either an intruder still in the house or hiding amongst the the side of the premises. It's a very large house. Um, And at this point, yeah, uh, Dali has indicated that there's someone running out of the garage. 2.35 and 9 seconds. Still whilst connected to the 911 dispatcher, Dali tells the responder they left the knife laying on 
Immediately, the dispatcher interjects, telling her not to touch the knife, to which Dala responds that she already has, which is, I think, fair enough to an extent, because it's, yeah, it's not like, I think that's, you know, I obviously wouldn't get into it, but murky the water you could see it on the floor below what's this pick it up and look at it especially when she was just following the intruder instincts picking it up well she'd only she'd only just woken up as well hadn't she so she might have still been a bit disorientated mm. Dali tells david that she saw the intruders run out of the garage david then instructs Dali to press towels to her two son's wounds it is significant to note she did not do this he repeatedly told her to apply pressure to damon's wounds she never did so there is, yeah, there are multiple interviews with the various arriving police officers and investigators to the scene. And one of the first to arrive was David, who did a very poignant interview about seeing Damon crawling along the floor and making eye contact with him. And obviously the boy is just five years old at the time. He's been brutally stabbed and is, is bleeding, uh, bleeding out at this point, which is just, yeah, unimaginable to, to have to deal with that. 2.36 and 48 seconds. The infamous 911 call comes to a close. Dali is still frantic, but her son Damon is still alive and breathing. The first ambulance would arrive at roughly 2.37am. It has also been noted that Sergeant Matt Walling arrived at the scene at this time. Once backup arrives, the officers and emergency services wait for the signal to search and then begin conducting a thorough search of the house and for any perpetrators. So yeah, as, as I said, at this point they're all speaking to each other and preparing as if there is someone still in the house and they're trying to secure the scene as well. It's all a bit chaotic. And this is when police find that a window had been slashed as it had a vertical cut to the screen. So at this point as well, once more officers are arriving, they notice Darren, who is fleeing the house in an attempt, so he says, to get to a neighbour who he knows is a nurse, um, so he can come and potentially get help for his, his two boys. So Darren is pulled back into the house, and Darren and Darley began shouting at one another. Darley was then escorted to the front of the house so that emergency services could examine the depth and severity of her injuries. And yeah, there are loads of quite graphic photos from this mm -hmm. case, but yeah, Darley's wounds are, are significant. And they're, so there's a very large gash to her neck as well as gashes on both of her arms and her arms are completely like black bruised at this point as well. Dali was then taken to the local hospital after noting the seriousness of her wounds. Paramedics later told in court that Dali did not once ask about her children during the trip to the hospital. They also noted that she was not visibly upset. See, one thing that I found that stuck with me from this case is um, when Darren's giving the account of coming upstairs and seeing what happened, um, he, his immediate thought is obviously try and, trying to save, save the kids. He's, so he gives mouth to mouth to Devon, um, his, his five-year-old uh, child, and he said whilst he was giving mouth to mouth, he could actually feel the air coming out of the wounds that whilst, whilst doing that, which is, I can't think of anything darker uh, uh, scene than that. When speaking to Dali about the incident, Dali began to tell a completely different version of events. Sergeant Walling testified that Dali had told him, quote, She said that when she woke up, the person was standing over her and that she was laying on the couch and that she began struggling with him. However, another police officer testified that she was awakened by the attacker. She then screamed and proceeded to fight him at the end of the bar. So they had a bar kind of between their living room or what they called the family room and the kitchen. So like a little kind of kitchen island type thing. And she claims that that is where they had a fight and there was a lot of broken glass and blood in this particular area. She then said that the attacker then ran through to the utility room and finally into the garage. It was only after this that she checked on her sons, who she realised had been attacked and left with life-threatening injuries. 3.25am. Dali arrives at the hospital and within 15 minutes of her arrival, she's taken in for surgery. 
After being in surgery for just under an hour, Dali's injuries to her throat and other wounds have been tended to. Continuing their search of the house, emergency services find six-month-old Drake in his crib. He is upstairs where it is confirmed there is no intruder. Damon was found clinging on for life. He was taken to Baylor Medical Center Dallas, but unfortunately, he drew his last breath in the ambulance. 4.30am, a blood-stained sock is found roughly 75 yards from the house. The sock is found behind the Rotier household in an alley. This sock showed Damon and Devon's blood. It also contained, in the end, the skin cells of their mother. Some have argued these cells may have come from Dali using it as a cover whilst picking up the bloody knife. Others have said it was staged to be there. Yeah, because this is the other interesting thing. Obviously, we'll talk about all of the different theories and, and one of which is maybe that Dali was going through some kind of psychotic episode. But as well, there was a point to make. Not only did she not ask about her, her children and what kind of condition they were in and if they're OK, she also made no mention at any point of Drake still being in the house and if anything had happened to him. Which you'd figure, if you're newest born, perhaps be slightly more protective or, or keen to know what's going on, but she didn't ask at any point. And yeah, as, as, as Tom mentioned, this sock would go on to be a significant piece of evidence in the later trial. At 6.11am, recovering from her surgery and the night's events, Dali is interviewed by police for the first time whilst she is in her hospital bed and more police continue to search her house. When conducting their search, the police find a bunch of gold rings and a Rolex watch, as well as several bracelets in the kitchen. So yeah, as we mentioned earlier, she had quite a large collection of fine jewellery. Um, this kind of pointed towards the idea of if it was an intruder, what was the motive, what was the gain? In addition to this, her purse was found next to the jewellery. Police officers at the scene found this extremely odd. Why would an intruder enter the home, presumably to rob the property, and leave these valuable items on the side when they were so easy to steal? Rowlett PD evidence specialist Sergeant David Neighbours found it extremely odd that it also looked as though the bathroom sink had been cleaned. So despite blood being all around different rooms and different parts of the house, and obviously we'll talk about that in more detail when we come to the trial, around the sink area of the bathroom, there were only blood smudges in the corners, which made it look a lot like someone had attempted to either wash their hands or wash something, maybe wash a weapon. And as a result, David Neighbours sprayed luminol across the surface. Luminol is able to detect the copper found within the blood, which can remain after being cleaned. This test did confirm his suspicions the sink had been cleared of blood. So basically this concluded that either a weapon or hands or both had been cleaned or attempted to be cleaned in this sink. As well as this, there were little traces of blood that indicated the attacker fled the scene through the garage and the window screen that had been cut did not show any bends or breaks that would presumably be caused by someone entering or leaving through the window screen. And it was concluded that the knife used to cut the screen belonged to the Rotiers. See, on that, the, the hole in the window screen was um, tested in terms of people seeing if it was possible because a lot of the... Uh, police were saying you couldn't actually get through that gap because there was dust on the side as well and the dust was undisturbed but um, it was proven from other tests that people could actually make their way through that without uh, disrupting the dust at all so um, that was kind of proven that it could possibly be a routine uh, so the, the knife was found in the knife block um, it, but it was the base of the bread knife so one with the rounded edge which Dali's mum was talking about saying why would they use that knife if you'd use any knife why would you use one with a rounded edge rather than you know, a sharp one which you could actually poke and, and rip it's a bit odd that that knife was found with that, that material on there, uh, but it was a bit of a weird one to use. And as well, the idea of if someone's broken in um, to the house, you through that way, they've gone that way, 
how would that knife be used? Because I would need to use that knife to get out. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an odd one, that knife one, but it's proven that you know people could fit through that gap without disturbing any of the dust. Furthermore, the house itself was said to have had, quote, maximum human devastation with minimal property damage by one investigator. There was a flower vase on the floor. The flower vase contained long-stemmed flowers that were all still intact. This led people to believe that they had been placed there. In addition to this, a hoover was found on the floor, but with blood underneath as though it had purposefully been placed there. The only footprints found were Darley's and boot prints from an officer. 4pm. Darley's injuries are photographed by the police. There is no dispute at this point that Damon and Devon have been killed. As Mr Toby Hook, Assistant Direct Attorney, put it in his closing statement. There is no question that it happened in Dallas County. We have alleged that he was murdered with a knife. I don't think you have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out this was the knife. The blood is on it. It's the size matching into the body, and it's left there. He was killed with a knife. The only issue is, who did it? 8th of June 1996. Dali is released from the hospital and is sent home to recover. Yet before going home, she makes a stop at the police station at the request of the officers who had previously interviewed her. During this stop, she gives another interview to the police. During this interview, she tells the police this version of events. I woke up hearing my son Damon saying, Mummy, Mummy, as he tugged me on my nightshirt. I opened up my eyes and felt a man get off me. I got up to chase after him. As I flipped the light in the kitchen on, I saw him open his hand and let the knife drop to the floor. He then ran out through the garage. I went over and picked up the knife. I shouldn't have picked it up. I probably covered up the fingerprints. I shouldn't have picked it up. I looked over and saw my two babies with blood over them. I didn't realise my own throat had been cut until I saw myself in a mirror. I screamed out to my husband. So I find, obviously, there's lots of this that you could find shocking and find, you know, you can't quite believe it, but... I understand if you're woken, if you're in a deep sleep, you can wake up and be confused as to what's going on. And I, I can even say, you know, if you're in a dark room, and you see something, you chase them out, you're not going to immediately see perhaps um, what's on the floor and what's happened. You're not, you're not thinking to look on the floor. You're thinking, what's going on there? Chase it. Chase the intruder. Not realising that you've had your, your throat slit. Yeah. Considering... Um, she was a light sleeper and was woken up by Drake moving in the bed slightly in the cot next to the bed slightly to then not being able to wake up with essentially her two sons being stabbed to death and her throat being slit. I think it's yeah. Her and her wounds on the re- I mean, the wound to her throat is significant. And if it was self-inflicted, which many believe it was, then it was believed to have been a serrated knife and sort of not just a quick slice to the neck. It was so deep that the knife would have had to be like sort of carved slightly. So that was a significant wound. First of all, then all of her arms are completely black and blue. She's got other knife wounds to her arms as well. It's like, I, I, that's the part that I struggled to pick together. If, if she is now trying to make it look like she's been attacked, that even then, it, they are very, very drastic injuries, aren't they, to, to commit to yourself? And then people said, well, is she right-handed? Is she left-handed? Because it was kind of um, the knife wound to her throat would indicate that she, it was with her weak, weaker hand. So her left hand would have reached over to the right side. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think to not realise that your own throat had been cut to that extent until she looked in the mirror, I don't buy that. The, the other thing, which I think surely... <laughs> should be quite easy to prove but yeah um some accounts say it was it was very close to the carotid artery which obviously would have been fatal and other uh, other accounts say it was just um all superficial and it wasn't that deep at all so it, it's 
surely the medical side of things could have proven that quite quite easily. But um, yeah, it's very different accounts depending on who you ask in this case. 10th of June 1996, Dali is interviewed for a third time by police. The investigators are far more aggressive during this interview and directly accuse Dali of killing her children six times. On four separate occasions during this interview, Dali says, well, if I did it, I don't remember. Which again, is a strange thing to say. Greg Davis, the first assistant district attorney of the Rowlett, Texas area, said the following on this interrogation. In all my years, I have never heard anything that unusual. Here's a stranger accusing you of killing your children and your response is, if I did it, I don't remember. I think when we look at her mugshot, we see that pained expression on her face. I don't think it's any pain for those two children. I think it's the pain of, you know what, they're actually going to charge me with this offence and I'm not going to get away with it. During this interview, more photos of Dali's injuries are taken. People have often debated the nature of Dali's injuries. Most of her bruising was found on the underside of her right arm. Her defence claimed that these bruises were self-defence marks. Yet, if this is the case, then why did Dali not have any cuts to this part of her body? Uh, And that's something that the prosecution would very much push for when it goes to trial. Furthermore, there have been disputes if these bruises were even there when Dali was in the hospital. So they basically asserted that out of the uh, interviews with police and out of the hospital, she would have exacerbated the bruises by, uh, you know, causing harm to herself. Uh, Dr. Alejandro Santos said the following. Other than the other wounds that we talked about earlier, no, I did not see any other type of injury. He also added that it is a nurse's duty to find injuries that we may have missed. And certainly something I would expect the nurses to point out to me or to the other doctors before we sent her home. 11th of June 1996. On this day, a woman named Mary Angela Rickles, known as Angel, reported to Rowlett Police that she was the victim of an attempted break-in on the 6th of June, the same night as Darley. She and her 15-year-old daughter were at home whilst her husband was working a night shift when they noticed the sound of someone trying to enter the house via the front door. At first, they thought that it was Mary's husband, but when she turned on the porch light and saw two men standing there, she became concerned. The bright light disturbed the men and Mary watched them run to Willowbrook Drive, which eventually leads to Eagle Drive, where the Rotiers live. That same night, Mary and her daughter had only just calmed down when they heard a tapping noise coming from a bedroom window near the front of the house. The men had returned. Mary described the men. One was stocky with blonde hair and was wearing a knitted cap. The other man was taller and thin. This time, Mary could see the men were brandishing something metal that could have been either a screwdriver or a knife. After scaring the men by turning on the bedroom light, Mary was more assured. The men did not return. She then proceeded to testify that she did not inform the police until the 11th because in her mind, the incident had passed and the police could no longer do anything to protect her or her family. However, she continued to have these occurrences happen. She said, Well, again in August, I saw that car pull out there and what triggered my memory was that the person that got out of the car was the same build as the stocky guy that I'd seen before. So I ran in and called the police. The car in question was a car that Mary saw parked outside of the house. It was not just Mary who reported strange sightings. The day of and the days after the attack, neighbours reported seeing unusual cars within the area. The cars were described as either being black or white, and many people reported seeing various different makes and models. Perhaps people were on heightened alert after hearing about the attack. Maybe these cars did belong to the alleged perpetrators of the attack on the Rotier family. Yeah, that's the thing. I think you could argue either way on this Mary Angelia Rickles lady. Um, She's waited five days to report uh, this 
potential break-in or attempted break-in and you could say well did, why, why not report that straight away why didn't you call anyone that night 14th of June 1996 Damon and Devin Rotier are buried they are placed in a single casket and are buried holding hands despite burying two of her sons Dali was quote chewing gum she wasn't crying and she looked like she was enjoying the attention quite frankly she didn't have the demeanour of a mother whose children had been brutally murdered a few days before said Toby Shook, who was the assistant district attorney. So to add to this, there was a lot of press and media attention on uh, the funeral of her two sons, and during which time Dali is seen by multiple news outlets. Some of them make reports of the fact that Dali is, quote, Laughing, smiling, singing, spraying silly string on the graves, and she also had balloons out. On the negative press that this received, Dali commented, They took something that was beautiful. They took something that was so innocent and made out of love, and they turned it into something ugly. It was twisted and taken out of context. So as well as what some consider quite odd behaviour from Dali at her two sons' funeral, um, a few months later there was also the uh, the what would have been the seventh birthday of her son Damon, uh, where her behaviour is even more uh, even more questionable um, and quite bizarre. So yeah, I, I think what what happened was there was Dali, her mother, uh, some of her siblings, and baby Drake, and they basically, from their perspective, they wanted to celebrate what would have been Damon's seventh birthday. I think she was very aware that there were cameras and news outlets present, um, but it was just yeah. I mean, watching it, I felt so uncomfortable um like spraying the silly string directly onto their grave and then spraying baby uh drake with it as well it just but then people will argue and obviously her her own mother argued that people deal with grief in different ways and we've obviously talked about that in different episodes of the podcast before i just the ultimate thing that i got out of it was just feeling very uncomfortable yeah it's it's a weird one because i can understand why people find it shocking but um from her point of view the boys loved playing with silly string. They were known to run around, play with it, shooting it all the time around the house. And it was, you know, they, as well, I think her smiling and, and whatnot, I think there's a small part, it apparently, allegedly was a small part of that, what they were doing there. It, they took 20 seconds out of the whole time they were there and used it as like kind of a, a thing, to, a stick to beat her with. But um, and it's worth mentioning as well that her crying, footage of her crying at the funerals and stuff weren't shown in the trial at all. It was just her smiling, which some people would say manically doing this at, at the at the gravesite. So I don't know, like people say, always say like, oh, I want you to celebrate lives. I want you to, I think it, it was well advised from her and it, she obviously got it very wrong. Um, but I don't think this was really used massively against her. And I don't think it's the most condemning thing other, you know, there's a lot more things that are worse than in that particular incident. But um, as you said, yeah, people deal with, with grief differently. And I think it was merely, she thought it was a nice thing to do. Dali later commented on the video saying, He wanted to be seven. I did the only thing I knew to do to honour him and give him all his wishes because he wasn't here anymore. But how do you know what you're going to do when you lose two children? How do you know how you're going to act? Which is a totally fair point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and obviously it's a very dark case and... Uh, but maybe I'll throw a bit of trivia in here. Tommy's trivia! <laughs> That's terrific! So yes, Silly String, which I thought can be terrific in its time, in its day. Um, I thought I want to learn a bit more about it. Originally I was going to, I was going down the angle of what other things could Silly String be used for, but um, there really wasn't a lot. So um, I have a little bit about Silly String. Uh, so this is a bit more of a, 
smorgasbord of, uh, of, of trivia, but so Silly String came to be in 1972 after Leonard A. Fish, an inventor, and Robert P. Cox, so Coxy and Fishy, uh, they wanted to, um, Fishy Cox, uh, they wanted to basically create an aerosol spray, uh, which would be an instant cast. So they wanted to basically just spray on it on the arm, Ooh. create an instant cast. Wow. And they were testing this, basically testing this out. They tested 500 nozzles um, to try and figure this out. And during the process, Fish would discover that nozzle that was capable of shooting the string about 30 feet across the room. So, so he was like, well, this is this is fun. So they decided to uh, make this into a, a product for kids. He apparently, uh, when they were doing it, he really mugged off one of the uh, his colleagues by covering his office with silly string. And apparently they stormed out, but they later came back and they managed to make it a success. Um, but yes, when I was looking for the other things that silly string perhaps have been used for, um, I didn't realise it's a big thing in the army. Oh, okay. Can either of you think as to why it might be? For like a serious, you know, use. Yeah, yeah. Not just for banter. Serious. Um, is it to block things? No. Um, is it to make? Is it? Do they square it on their weapons to make simulate difficult shooting conditions? No. No. No, not that. Oh. Um, so during the Iraq conflicts in the two thousands, the military discovered a great use for silly string. They would use its contents to check for trip wires designed to set off booby traps. Wow. By spraying Ooh. it in the air, the string would fall on trip wires that may otherwise be hidden. That's very clever. Very clever. Very clever. Um, and yeah, the last bit. So that was a bit. I, was, I saw that. I was like, "Fucking hell!" I've got lots of gold here. Then that literally is the only thing they used it for. So I did, <laughs> my last little final bit was: I thought I was whilst looking for silly string. I found a lot of different places called it different names, and I found them quite amusing. So I'm going to share them with you. Tesco calls it party wacky string. Amazon called. Huh? I'm surprised they use wacky these days. Why? Don't know. I just feel like that would be one of the ones to watch out for. I don't know what it could. Don't know. I feel like it's a lesser used word these days, wacky. Party wacky strings! <laughs> and Amazon, silly crazy strings. Silly crazy strings! Party mania, feels like they're trying to outdo each other. Party mania, unique wacky string. Unique wacky string! And my favourite, um, the range, um, crazy colourful spray string, party silly string. Yeah, I thought that. <laughs> Which is, yeah. It's just quite the name. And, and finally, Dan, I thought you might be interested in that you can buy a party string gun. So essentially, you can put the canister on the bottom of a gun and, it's, and then shoot it. No way. It's for £39.60. It's quite a lot Ooh. for maybe just t- 10 minutes of fun. But yeah, that's my little trivia silly string. I thought a little light moment for, from such a dark case. Um, but yeah, imagine using... T- Sarge, I got the silly string. You can't really imagine it. Um, but very interesting nonetheless. Fantastic. Yes, well, back to the case. 18th of June, 1996, almost two weeks after the murders, Dali conducts a fourth police interview. This one is voluntary. During this interview, Dali is told that the police have a warrant for her arrest. After being told this, Dali does not ask for an attorney, but continues to talk to the police for an hour before doing so. After the interview, she is arrested for the murder of her sons. Due to the amount of press coverage and local attention that the case has so far garnered, a representative of the City of Rollett Police Department arranges a press conference, where he makes the following announcement. At approximately 10.20pm this evening, investigators from the Rowlett Police Department arrested Darlie Routier, white female, age 26. I cannot comment on the details of this investigation other than to say we believe that the white male suspect described by Darlie Routier as the man that attacked her and murder her children never existed. 
6th of January 1997. Six months after Darley's arrest, the trial of Darley Rotir begins. The first witnesses are called to the stand. During the next month, the prosecution claimed that Darley was suicidal and had killed her own children before injuring herself to stage an attack. During the trial, the jury heard multiple pieces of crucial information which could have been read as proving her guilt. The prosecution also claimed that Darley killed her children so that she would have been able to claim their life insurance. Yet the defence stated that this could not have been the case as her husband's life insurance was 80 times her children's at $800,000 and each child's life insurance was only $10,000 which wasn't even enough to cover the funeral expenses for each child. The prosecution suggested that Darley murdered her sons because of the family's dire and ever-growing financial difficulties, and they described her as A self-centred woman, a materialistic woman, and a woman cold enough, in fact, to murder her own two children. It is also alleged by the prosecution that Darley became depressed during the pregnancy of her third child, staying in her own bedroom for weeks and sometimes months at a time. A diary belonging to Darley that was found in the Rotir home is shared with the court. One of the more damning pages of the diary includes what appears to be a suicide note written by Darley just three weeks before the murders of her two boys. It says the following. Dear Devon, Damon and Drake, I hope that one day you will forgive me for what I'm about to do. My life has been such a hard fight for a long time and I just cannot find the strength to keep fighting anymore. I love you three more than anything else in the world. I don't want you to see a miserable person every time you look at me. Your dad loves you all very much, and I know in my heart he would take care of my babies. Please do not hate me, or think in any way that this is your fault. The defence would counter this with the argument that, if Dali had killed her sons to preserve her lavish lifestyle, why did she leave her youngest son, then seven-month-old Drake, alive and unharmed? One of the pieces of information that was brought to the forefront of the case was the matter of a motion-activated light. The prosecution argued that this light should have been triggered if an intruder had entered the home through the garage window, which was obviously the one that showed some signs of potential disturbance. However, when responders arrived at the scene, no such light was on, and if it had been triggered, it would have remained alight for 18 minutes. So the defence would struggle to counter this claim and although the prosecution had uh, had argued about the 18-minute motion-activated light, they did not mention that the light would only have been triggered if someone had walked directly up to the Rotiers Redwood Home Spa. So the Rotiers, as well as the, the car and the boat and the jewellery and the Rolex, they also had an outdoor spa um, and it was also kind of doubled up as an entertainment centre and the distance between the spa and the house would have allowed an intruder to enter the house without ever turning on the lights um, so that was something that was not shared with the jury in addition to this there was also a detailed debate over the nature of Dali's injuries were they self-inflicted or not when she was asked based upon your examination of mrs rotier and the photographs that you have seen do you have an opinion whether or not these wounds were self-inflicted in reasonable medical probability dr janice townsend parchman commented they could have been so, Dr. Janice Townsend Parchman, with kind of a Ben Carter answer there, is kind of sitting on the fence a little bit. San Antonio Chief Medical Examiner Vincent DeMaio testified that the wound to Rotier's neck came within two millimetres of her carotid artery and that it was not consistent with the self-inflicted wounds that he had seen in the past. 
So this statement from Vincent de Mayo differed massively from the claims of uh, Dali's thus far treating physicians who had told police officials that the wounds may have been self-inflicted. Tom Bevel, who was a blood spatter expert, testified that cast off blood found on the back of Dali's nightshirt indicated that she had raised the knife over her head as she withdrew it from each boy to stab again. Which, yeah, that's that's quite damning uh, evidence in itself. In addition to this, there was a bloody handprint found on the couch that looked like it had been wiped away, potentially in a clean-up attempt, much like the sink we mentioned earlier. However, it has been speculated that this part of the case has been fabricated and actually has little truth in it. It is believed that this may have come from Toby Shook, who may have misspoke during his closing arguments, which is a terrible time to misspeak. He said the following. Another thing that didn't make sense is the handprint. You will recall they cut it out. It was Damon's handprint. It was a small palm print there on the couch. Actually, I think it was right in this area here. They cut it out. The blood came back to Damon and you could see his little hand there. The trouble is they didn't find that until after they pulled the blanket up. You see that blanket had to be placed there after he had walked through there. The bloody handprint was actually found on the carpet next to the couch. It was then cut out of the carpet and taken for forensic testing. Furthermore, luminol, which had been used to prove the sink had been cleaned of blood, did not show that a handprint had been wiped away from the couch. As well as this, there was blonde-eyed hair found on the cut of the window screen of the Rotiers' house. It was this window which was alleged to have been the entry point for the attackers. This one piece of evidence denied Dali a £1 million bail. However, a DNA forensic test was not used to identify this hair strand, and when it was analysed months later, it showed that the hair actually belonged to a Rowlett police officer, Sarah Jones. Sarah Jones did not work on this case and therefore this creates a question about cross-contamination. Sarah Jones's husband did work on the case and his name was Eric Zimmerman and he worked as an emergency responder at the Road Tier property on the night of the murders. Interestingly enough, Eric was not called to testify during the trial, although he did admit that he may have cross-contaminated two articles of clothing. Eric later recalled placing two items of bloody clothing in the same bag, which may have made the blood patterns increasingly more difficult to analyse, as the articles of clothing were still wet, and therefore could have seeped into each other. So yeah, that's, that's quite a big blunder. There's a lot of criticisms about how the uh, crime scene was handled and preserved, so yeah, that that's that's a big blunder to make. Yeah, unexpected item in bagging area. They're putting yep. two of the, of the same. Yeah, that's incredibly uh, shocking. We've done a lot of blunders. It'd be, it'd be interesting to do. It's too many episodes we've done, but the biggest blunders we've ever covered by police. But that is a very stupid. We've run out of bags. Just put it in there. Mm. It's very silly. I think that's the thing. Although we've both kind of indicated that we we're in the guilty party with regards to Dali. It hasn't helped her cause whatsoever in that there have been a series of police blunders here. And I also feel, although when they first, you know, for the first hour, maybe they believed there was a an intruder in the house and that's why they were trying to get people out and move things around. I think other than that, they've immediately assumed Dali is guilty and unstable. And that's that's why all of this has happened. Yeah, they, they immediately, one of the policemen apparently after 20 minutes of being there said, she's the main suspect, she's guilty. Yeah. So then like the bias that you then start looking for evidence to, to fit your story. Yeah. Um, yeah, we are both in the same camp and same party for this one, which is nice to be in the same party as you for once. <laughs> yeah. Usually you're in the quite right leaning ones, but um, it's, oh. it's interesting to, to hear your, your take on this, Ben. It is important to note that several DNA samples were taken on the night of the murders. A lot of the samples came from the night shirt that Dali was wearing on the same night. Yet other samples came from a knife blade handle, the sweatband of a cap, 
two buccal swabs from Dali, and a sample from a sock found outside of the house containing bloodstains belonging to both of her boys. The evidence was tested at UNT Health Science Center, Department of Medical and Molecular Genetics, in Fort Worth, Texas. Blood spatter found on Dali's nightshirt was found to be cast-off blood, which showed it appeared by an object in motion. For example, a knife being struck repeatedly into a body. A drop of Devon's blood was found in the back of Dali's nightshirt. How could it have gotten there unless she was striking her son? The defence argued that the sock found near the house could not have been staged by Dali. An examination of Damon's injuries stated that he could only have survived these injuries for eight minutes before passing. Dali was on the phone with the emergency services for over five minutes. With this in mind, it seems highly improbable that she was able to severely injure and kill her children, stage an attack, and then injure herself before calling 911. That's very interesting, isn't it? Because... The dad gets completely looked over in all of this as well. He does. He does. I mean, I think it's more so that there's so much, but it doesn't help that Dali was sleeping downstairs with them, but there's so much more of Dali's DNA found at the scene mm. than there was of the father's. But, but then there was also so much proven to have uh, attempts at cleaning the scene, mm. which again, how would she have had time? I know I'm hopping between sides here a little bit, but how would she then have also had time to try and clean the scene? Because the sink has been tried to clean, it's alleged that the couch and... Yeah, you can't clean the scene, it's a goddamn um, sock race. Um, wow. Um, Mary Rickles, the lady we mentioned earlier, who had reported a similar type of quote-unquote intruder breaking, was called to the stand during the trial. She told the court about the night she saw the two men try to enter her property. It is important to note that she said that she was only able to offer a description of the gentleman's clothing. So many of these other witness testimonies have disputed each other. This is often known as a memory error. David Schachter, in his book, The Seven Sins of Memory, How the Mind Forgets and Remembers, states that there are seven different factors that can lead to memory error. These are absent-mindedness, blocking, transience, misattribution, bias, suggestibility, and persistence. The more you know. I couldn't put it down. I simply couldn't. Um, but I can't remember most of it. <laughs> no, fair place to, to David. This memory error can lead to significantly different eyewitness testimonies and to something known as the misinformation effect. This term, coined by Elizabeth Loftus, is the phenomenon. Oh, it's always oh, this word. Oh, that me. word. Phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Is the phenomenon. <laughs> is the phenomenon that describes how memories can change and become false due to exposure to misleading questions, information, or new memories, as stated by practical psychology. Being asked leading questions by the police or hearing other testimonies in court could potentially lead to this effect taking place. Yeah, so that's that's interesting because we talked about obviously the Central Park Five. Uh, a couple of weeks ago where 44% of wrongful convictions were initially from people that pleaded guilty in the first place after either coerced or, or guided interrogations. So that's, yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you. You're welcome. No problem. That's a bit of Thomas Rivia. <laughs> 31st of January, 1997. All the evidence has been heard and the case comes to a close, leaving the jury to deliberate their decision. During the closing arguments, the prosecution tells the jury the following... I think that Darren said it best on videotape on June the 14th when he categorised and classified this case as being that where a wolf came in and took the lives of two helpless sheep. And in this case, the one who did that, the wolf, paraded around as the shepherd. That's what happened in this case. And it does cry out for death. Darren Rutia tells you, whoever did this should die. Cyrilda Rutia tells you, if this woman did it, she should die. It's not hard to see. Even the family understands. Whoever would come out and take the life of these two children, that person should die. And we don't need some psychiatrist from Austin or Dallas to tell us what is obvious. Because the facts in this case tell us what needs to be done. 
and that is the awful truth here. This case calls out for death. Now, you have to ask yourselves, you know, as we, here in 1997, what kind of society do we live in now? It's a sad commentary on the society that our children can't be safe. I guess it's understandable that our kids can't roam around at night on the streets and expect to be safe at all times. But surely to God, have we gotten down to the point that our kids can't even sleep in their own homes and be safe from their own mother? But that is where we are in this society, apparently. So, yeah, very, very damning closing argument there from the prosecution. Very damning. It was very damning as well, yes. Mm. We then move to the 1st of February, 1997. Dali Rotir is sentenced to death for the murder of her son, Damon. She started crying before she was even given her sentence. On the 4th of February, she was then sentenced to death by lethal injection. Dali was only prosecuted for the death of one son, and this is because Damon was under the age of six, and therefore prosecution of his death would solely allow her to be sentenced to death. Women that are sentenced to death under Texas law are housed specifically in the Mountain View unit in Gatesville, Texas. And that is where she remains to date almost 26 years later. So that was the timeline of the Dali Rotier case. We're of course, uh, we're of course going to go on to some aftermath now. But I did think in this case, when we picked it, uh, you know, when we sat down and picked the episodes for this series, I did think Dali Rotier, that's an interesting name. A little bit, but yeah, should we go into the aftermath? No. Nah. Oh. Play me in. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Um, happy autumn to all of you, um, or whatever season it is uh, at the time that you're listening to this episode. We started the case with a nice bit of Tommy's alliteration, and now we arrive at Benny's anagrams. Um, and I thought this might be quite quite interesting, quite spooky. Um, obviously, if you haven't yet decided which which uh, side you're on, if it's guilty, if it's innocent, if it's impartial, on the fence somewhere, maybe a little bit of anagram uh, could help you reach your sort of verdict. And I also thought, you know, Dali Routier, it's an interesting name, really interesting. And I wonder what anagrams can be made. The more you say it, doesn't make it more. I can force it, I can force it. (laughs) I can see a lot of words in her name. And I wonder, you know, are there any clues in the anagrams that lie within Dali Routier? Uh, So I thought maybe, you know, that we could get some sort of resolution to the case and help get it solved once and for all. So Dali Routier, or should I say, Derail Torah, as in a tourist of derailment because she sort of derailed her story changed a lot no all right Dali Rotier or should I say Dialer Rioter because 911 call yeah interesting interesting other words using the full name Adulterer Retailored here's an interesting one Arteriole let me just check what that is pronounced what website is this from I've got a few different sources mate uh Arterial. Thank God that didn't make it in. <laughs> what do you know? Dan's done Ben. <laughs> Come back next time for another Dan does Ben. <laughs> arterial, and I thought that was interesting. An arterial is a very small blood vessel that branches off from your artery and carries blood away from your heart to your tissues and organs. And obviously, unfortunately, in this case, uh, that 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 part of the body was damaged. Um, editorial, because she changed her narrative a few times. Deliberator because she sort of deliberated, well, the jury deliberated not for very long, actually. Territorial, because of the DNA. There's a lot of her DNA in the place. And directorial. Did you say deliberator? Yeah, I said deliberator as well. Where's the, so where's the B? Uh, 
don't know. I think that that one should have probably made it on there. <laughs> what do you know, Tom's done Ben? Come back next time for another Tom Does Ben. <laughs> then how spooky is this, right? Using as many of the words as you like, as many times as you like, tittle-tattler or tittle-tattled. Using as many as you like. Uh, and also ratatouille. What, so you're just making words? Yeah, it's kind of. And then I thought, you know what? Before the general public beat me to it, some for us. So Tom Norris, Iron Storm. Thought he'd like that one. I was going to be nice as well. I could have gone with Minor Rots. Uh, Dan Lambert, Ant Rambled. Uh, there was you were one um, you were one letter away from Bandmaster, but you had no S. Sorry, mate. Uh, and Ben Carter, Bra Center. Um, there was also Bar Recent, which I thought could have been a good rapper name for me. Bar Recent, recent Bar. So there you go, The Adventures of Iron Storm, Ant Rambled, and Bra Center. Bloody interesting, that. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Dan. Back to the aftermath. Ben Carter's Interesting Facts. Interesting Facts. I'm excited to hear um, Dan's findings from this week. After the aftermath, <laughs> though, so... Um, <clears throat> He's given you it for less. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, there's outrage. There's public it's outrage. Just, it's just words that we can make from a word. <laughs> Add a few letters in. No one's going to notice. <clears throat> Aftermath. So an interesting note to start us off. This comes from a Facebook page called Stop the Lies. Dali Routier is guilty, but does appear to have been backed up with various sources. It writes, On July 16th, 1997, a month and 10 days after the murders, Dali's sister-in-law, Dana, was arrested in Plano, Texas and charged with two counts of assault and family violence in an incident that also involved Darren, Danelle, Darley Key, which was Darley's mother, and baby Drake. Responding to a 911 call from Darley Key's home, officers observed an adult female carrying a screaming infant, which was baby Drake, fleeing the home to get the infant away from the fighting going on inside the house. Danelle stated that she and Dana began to have a verbal argument about the dog and Drake, when Dana just lost control and started physically assaulting Danelle. Her mother, Darley Key, said, Dana just came at her and grabbed her by the hair. She had swelling on her from being hit with a vase. Dana had assaulted her several times on previous occasions, but never like this. The Facebook page speculates that physical violence was commonplace in the Rotier family. It's not completely clear as to why Darren was ruled out uh, as a potential suspect, but despite Darley's conviction, Darren stood by her for many years before eventually shying away from the media upon divorcing Darley in 2011. He would testify at trial and has long remained a believer of Darley's innocence, and some still believe that Darren may have been responsible for the two murders. In June of 2011, as we mentioned, Darren Rotier would file for divorce from his wife. And the reasons behind this, basically, he stated that the feeling was mutual. And although it was a very difficult decision to reach, um, they felt that it was the best thing to do for their future and also in raising Drake. He also went on to say that he still believes his wife is innocent and that they decided to divorce to end the limbo that they had been in since her arrest and conviction. As to whether or not she believes her son-in-law could have committed the crimes, a question raised by the defence team in its appeals, Darley Key, the mother of Darley Rotier, said the following. Darren is not violent. He has never been violent. He's a soft-hearted person. No way he'd ever hurt the boys or Darley. Darley Key, Darley Rotier's mother, remained sad because her own mother, who died in 2007, after 62 years of marriage to her father, was unable to give her oldest of eight grandchildren, Darley, a hug before she died. She also stated that the name Darley has been in her family for at least four generations. 
Defence attorneys alleged numerous errors were made during Rutia's trial and in the official transcript of it, as well as the investigation of the murders, especially at the crime scene. In 2008, Rutia was granted the right to new DNA tests. Her appeals were remanded to the state level of improved DNA testing. On January 29, 2014, Chief Judge of the Western District Fred Byrie granted a request from prosecution and defence for a case for further DNA tests vital to defence to be performed on a bloody fingerprint found in the house, a bloody sock and her nightshirt. In 2018, the Criminal District Court No. 3 ordered a third round of DNA testing with the backing of both prosecution and defence. Through Tia's younger son, Drake, still visits his mother in jail. He's been diagnosed with acute lymphocytic leukaemia. Like his father, Drake continues to believe in his mother's innocence. I watched uh, an interview with him. Um, he's obviously, you can't imagine the, the troubles he's been through in his life, but he's, yeah, he's a, quite an inspiring figure and a lot of people hold him in very high esteem for what he's been through and the fact that he, he, he's kind of an advocate for his mum being innocent. But yeah, I found him a very inspiring character. So a bit more on Drake. So despite the upheaval of the murders of his brothers, Damon and Devon, and the imprisonment on top of that for his mother, Drake Rotier grew into, quote, the most adaptable kid I've ever seen, which is according to his father, Darren. And again, yeah, he's, he's gone on to do campaigning for his mother and various press interviews. He does, he does come across really well, but he's, he's lived such a sad and, and tragic life, uh, unfortunately. Many people believe that the dire financial situation, coupled with her depression and suicidal tendencies, caused Dali to experience a psychotic episode. And this one for me, what I lean towards the most in terms of what potentially happened that night. Yeah. According to Oxford Academic, who conducted a study on psychosis and the risk of stranger homicides, in a meta-analysis of seven studies that reported homicidal acts, which are basically homicides and attempted homicides, committed by patients during psychotic illness, the incidence of stranger homicidal acts was estimated to be 1 in 14.3 bit... F***ing number was estimated to be one in 14.3 million people per year. So, yeah, it's, it's very, very rare that these things do happen, but occasionally they do happen. According to the NHS website, psychosis can also be triggered by traumatic experiences, stress or physical conditions, such as Parkinson's disease, a brain tumour, as well as a result of drug misuse or alcohol misuse. How often a psychotic episode occurs and how long it lasts can depend entirely on the underlying cause. So for, for Dali, obviously there was loads of stress relating to the, the family's financial situation. She had postpartum depression. She had tried various diet medication as well and she'd obviously had a highly turbulent uh, few months with Darren and a lack of sleep as well. Uh, so that's kind of more of the direction I lean that maybe she because you can also can under under a psychotic episode you can commit acts and not remember them yeah she obviously went on to say five times in that, that, that later interrogation so that's the fit the only the only version of events that kind of adds up to me is that one yeah I watched um, some body language experts looking at some of her movements and in interviews because when I first watched it again I think maybe it's just you want to believe that she's innocent. So you're watching it with that in mind. And she comes across well in interviews now with her in prison. She seems like, you know, quite level-headed. And yeah, you want to believe that she wouldn't do this and who would do this. Um, but yeah, I was watching some experts analysing her body language in, in, in the police interview, the initial one, the one that's quite infamous. And they're saying that the way she she's not looking at the person she's talking to, she ends up looking at the camera a few times, talking directly down the lens. She starts feigning kind of like um, the, the sign of pain, like on her face, 
which apparently had key evidence that they looked like it was rehearsed rather than it was natural. Um, and one of them would actually go on to say that she, they think she's a psychopath from her behavior. She's a lot of learned behaviors, um, forced things, and the way that she's able to, in other instances, just not worry about things and be completely calm and not be reacting to, you know, the sad, the sad passing of her, apparently, allegedly to her, two murdered children. So yeah, it is, I'm with you in regards to, I believe that a psychotic episode um, led on by a numer- uh, numerous different elements leading to that. With postpartum depression, I know that can make people act very um, erratically at times. So it wouldn't be as too big a stretch from that. But I just think if she's done it in the knowledge and in sound mind, I, I don't understand the motive because the life insurance wouldn't have covered it and it doesn't really get her out of this. I can't fathom any other kind of motive there. Is it sim- wanting sympathy and wanting the spotlight? Maybe, but... I wish, yeah, I mean, that's such a need. Yeah, I mean, from what every all other accounts beforehand of, of how she was with the children, apparently a very doting mother, a very loving mother. So to think that she would just suddenly... Uh, a switch would flip in her head and then she's gone to that. It's very hard to digest and hard to believe. That's why there's so many different theories out there, isn't there? Cause, yeah, well, I mean, if she did it and you, you stand this case next to Chris Watts, mm. who had obviously a mistress and other motives to make what he... the awful things that he did happen... That's what I'm. I can, I can't see. I can't see his reasoning behind it. But you see a motive there with Chris Watts with Dali. I just don't. It doesn't make sense in my head, which is why I don't. Well, Dali is an impressionist painter, so it's hard to actually um, fathom some of the paintings. A lobster phone. Two appeals have been filed by Dali since her incarceration, who to this day maintains her innocence. Her appeals, based on allegations of irregularities during the trial, were both denied. In the last five years at the time of recording, DNA tests have been ordered multiple times after technology has advanced. And as of 2022, the results of these tests are still pending. Investigateninnocence.org have Dali listed as one of their featured cases and make multiple claims of her innocence. Comparing her case to that of David Cam, who was exonerated after serving 13 years in prison for a similar crime. Their team members work entirely off of donations and their slogan is, Our members are devoted to freeing the innocent. On the site, private investigator Gary Dunn is quoted as saying the following after the release of his client, David Cam. Bloodstain evidence is mostly subjective. One bloodstain expert said it's like looking at the clouds. They all see something different. They sign off Dali's donation page as follows. With this much uncertainty and doubt about the reliability of the interpretations of the bloodstain experts like Tom Bevel, can we tolerate the execution of a woman who has always maintained her innocence? Can we tolerate the execution of Dali Rutia, who by all appearance was a crime victim? along with their children who died that night. It closes with, Make your voice heard. We are calling on you to urge Dallas County District Attorney Craig Watkins to stop the execution of Dali Rutia. So since being housed on death row, Dali Rotier was interviewed by Werner Herzog as part of his series on interviews with inmates on death row. And it's a very interesting watch. I mean, that whole series is really good. It's all available on YouTube. And she comes across, like Tom said, she's very uh, level-headed, very personable, and still absolutely adamant that um, she played, uh, you know, she played no part in her children's murders. And it's really good for aftermath and continued appeals and her current state, although I believe, yeah, 2013 so it's a decade old at the time Dali has been on death row for the last 26 years 
She keeps in the loop of mainstream news via magazines and newspapers that she is able to access via her work scheme at the prison. She works in various laborious roles, including crochet, knitting and the stitching of flags and garments. She remains adamant to date of her innocence and still asserts that there was an intruder or group of intruders escaping her property at the time that she regained her composure. While talking to a British journalist who's also interviewed her on death row, Darley maintained her innocence and said the following. I didn't do this. I'm at peace with myself. I didn't do this. I did not murder my children. I did not attack myself. If they choose to kill me, that's my innocent blood that will be on their hands. It is not clear when Dali will be executed, if she will be executed at all. According to deathpenaltyinfo.org, there is no accurate measure of the length of time prisoners spend on death row. Some prisoners are on death row for only a short period of time before their convictions or death sentences are overturned in the courts. Others have spent more than four decades on death row before being exonerated or being non-capitally resentenced. The average time prisoners spend on the state's death row before an execution date in Texas is set at nearly 21 years. And for context, Dali has already served 26 years on death row. That's a long time for an average. No wonder it's uh, overpopulated. That, that Werner Herzog uh, documentary with her, I mean, all of his, that series is really interesting because he's, he can get away with, I don't, it's just because of his way, his mannerisms, he can get away with asking really blunt questions by sort of... He does the same thing as Thuru does, doesn't he? He asks yes. it as if he's being an idiot, but when he really knows the question he's asking, and because he's like, he's like, oh, I'm just, I'm German, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> but yeah, he does manage to wriggle out some answers. Um, yes, but that is the case of Dali Rotir. Um, as we said, it was a, it's a highly debated case, but I, you know, I think me and Ben both leaning towards the same, um, perpetrator of the case, but it's more a question of the motive, really. I think that is one that has got people scratching their heads. Um, but, um, a little bit light relief, uh, I think producer Dan is going to free us from the other thing that's been plaguing our thoughts. Oh yeah. This bloody riddle. Yeah. Do you, do you remember it after all this time? No. It's going to really annoy you. On the first day of school there was a young girl who was found murdered. Police suspect four male teachers and question them. They were asked what they were doing at 8am. Mr Walter. I was driving to school and I was late. Mr Thomas. I was checking English exam papers. Mr Benjamin. I was reading the newspaper. Mr Calvin. I was with my wife in my office. The police arrested the killer. How did the police find the murderer? I don't know. I'm immediately suspicious of the guy that was late. Well, this first day at 8 a.m. And what they what are they doing at the time is what I'm thinking of. So one person's late, which could be, but that, he's not at school. So if he's late, mm. one person with his wife, it sounds like he's not at school. Did the murder take place at school? Murdered her for, at her first day at school. But had she made it to school? Well, she's murdered at her first day. Oh, is it going to be really annoying? Like it's one of the relatives of the teachers? No. Um, but you know, Tom's going down the right, oh. down the right road. On the first day of school, <laughs> didn't know. Is it going to annoy us? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Oh, yeah, I, I fold. I'm going with the driver. You going with the driver, Mr. Walter? Who are you going with, Tom? Just pick a, pick a, pick a man. Any man. Um, the one that was marking. Wow. Tom got it. No way. Because, of course, on the first day of school, you can't mark English exam oh. papers because there's been no exams. Yeah, that's what I thought. Bloody hell. I was about to say that. Oh, well, I'm sure our listeners are going, obviously, you knobheads, but um, 
do let us know if you got the riddle. Obviously, it's just, it's, it's just always nice to have the excuse to listen to the jingle. Dan's riddle sly and mischievous grim. Twist and turn and mind game to win. Puzzles are plenty of chuckle or two. A laugh and thought we find our clue. Riddles! So that was the case of Dali Rotir. Um, a little cryptic clue for um, next week's uh, episode is as follows. Everyone is as follows. Every house needs one, Bob. Every house needs one, Bob. We do appreciate, obviously, we've kind of lent more towards the guilt uh, party here with the case of Dali Rotir, but we, we do completely appreciate those that have a differing opinion. Of course, all opinions are welcome. But we do hope you enjoyed that episode. If you cannot wait until next week's episode, which just giving you a little bit of a cryptic teaser for, uh, then why not head over to icmap.co.uk, where at the time of filming, we have 127 special exclusive episodes over there. And we're celebrating our third birthday here at the podcast. It's been a wild, a wild party. We are slashing membership prices in half for the remainder of this month. So why not head over there? We recently covered the 1962 Alcatraz escape attempts, uh, which absolutely fascinating uh, case. And uh, it's a it's a prison you've spent some time in, Tom. I believe I've been there before, and I've took pictures on that island. Uh, very very rocky waters when I was was going there in the boat. So I don't envy the men trying to escape and swimming across there. <laughs> oh, did they come to the website? As well as all the exclusive episodes that we mentioned, we also do monthly live streams. You get exclusive access to site-only merchandise, and we've got some new lines on there, fresh and clean. And we also do early access. And um, early access, if you didn't know, is you get the main channel episodes three days earlier than the rest of the world. So um, well worth the money already pretty sneaky and also the thing about the episodes we also do audio versions as well so you're able to listen to the episodes. you don't have to be looking at your phone the whole time you can pop them in your ears and get on with your business but anyway thank you so much for listening guys very much appreciated and don't forget if you are listening to us on on a, on, on a platform where you can do a rating or you can do a review it, it helps more than you ever know and on spotify we do pop a little question up asking them how you guys found the episodes we always like to hear what you guys think but until next time um like we've been known to say many a time nearly over a hundred times well well over a hundred times now over mm. 200 times now we say this all the time keep doing what are you doing Unless it's not trying the taters at Texas Western Sizzling Steakhouse, because they are truly the best taters this side of Texas. That's fair. I can't pick them up on anything there. No. Well, don't, if you're going to critique someone's wardrobe, don't be incelish about it. Yeah. We, That's yeah. also true, isn't it? You were guilty of that bit earlier. So study anagrams properly before you... Oh, yeah. We haven't even gone there yet. Oh, Damn quickly. It's fine. Uh, Tom. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers. Thank you very much. See you later. All best. <laughs> Too bad. i could murder a podcast is proudly part of the acast creator network for hundreds of extra minisodes and other content along with our private discord server and live q a's exclusive merch and much more consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk